There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Moore, joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. As we take a look at film, TV and documentaries this week. No news, because nothing's happened again. No nothing <laughs> happens. Um, what we've been watching will be led by Owen this week in a in a re a reinvention of the wheel and <laughs> new releases, features, um, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, Doctor Who's 50th anniversary special, and yeah, Saving Mr. Banks. Saving Mr. Banks. Um, but first, we will start with the quiz that James is winning two 0 and Owen is oh. now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think last ones have been a little bit too easy. This might not be so easy to start with, okay. but we'll okay. we'll see. Here we go. Okay, so the first film is The Thin Red Line. Oh, there's loads of there's people, loads in, that. Of people in that. Bastard, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Second film is Semi Pro. <gasps> oh, right. Okay, hang on. Semi Pro. James, go for it. Woody Harrelson. It's Woody Harrelson. How did Fucking you get that? Yes! Oh, shocking. Boom! I knew Will Ferrell wasn't in Thin Red Line. <laughs> <laughs> and neither was Andre 3000. I quite like Semi Pro. It's, it's a decent film. Awesome. Well, uh, as Very with a whitewash there, 3 yeah. 0, um, Steve. Ouch. You've got, you got to be feeling a little bit of pain there. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Like a like a, a a student of Kipling, you are treating triumph and adversity uh, in in the same way, and you will become a man, <laughs> my boy. Um, so yeah, um, I win, and I get to make sure that you two before next week it's on Netflix UK. Uh, watch the final member, the brilliant <laughs> documentary. And it's only about seventy five minutes long, or something like that. Yeah. But the brilliant documentary about the uh, Icelandic Penis Museum and its search for its first human specimen. So there we go. That's what we're all watching for next week. And then everyone can hear about it. Fantastic. (laughs) Oh, I've won something. Finally. (laughs) This is one of my crowning achievements. You've you've got to do the the quiz hosting next week. Yeah, I love hosting the quiz as well. No, I love hosting the quiz. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm going to come up with some super double money round or something just for for the fun of it. (laughs) No, I won't. I really won't. I won't mess with Steve's perfect setup. Anyway, Steve. Steve is got love. He's gone quiet. I just don't care. <laughs> you know, I've thrown a kettle over a pub. What have you done? <laughs> if, I can throw this, if I can throw a kettle over my house, that's the real quiz. Yeah. So, 
Uh, let's have a break and do what we've been watching. It's what we've been watching then, and, and this week, Owen's watched a lot um, of different things that the rest of us have already watched, um, or some of us have already watched. So Owen's going to talk about what he's watched, and then we're going to talk about them also. Um, so, Owen, where do you want to start with this? Okay, I'll, I'm just going to, like, because I have watched quite a few films, I'm just going to gloss over some and say whether they're worth watching or whether they're not. Um, sort of very briefly, they're not really full reviews, and then there are a couple that I think are worth talking to both of you about in a bit more detail. So I'm just going to start by saying I watched uh, Maniac uh, on Netflix <laughs> UK, um, which is a point of view horror remake with starring Elijah Wood. So it's sort of like um, Peep Show, if you like, a bit like Peep Show, if Mark and Jerry went around killing people. That's sort of what it's like. It was all right. It was okay. It wasn't. Um, I mean, it. it, it Kind of descended into a typical slasher film. But prior to that, I thought it was quite interesting, quite good. Starts off quite well, actually. But, um, yeah, like I say, it, it ends up as a, as a bit of a typical horror slasher, man with knife going around stabbing people film. Um, I also watched uh, another Michael Haneke film. Uh, this time was this original 1997 German language house invasion um, spoof parody genuine thriller I don't really know uh, but I, I hated it really what's it called again oh and you didn't say what it's called I didn't say what it's called did I no. it's called Funny Games Funny Games uh, yeah I hated it the, the past two that I've seen are more and uh, hidden I've kind of come out of them at the end thinking what what do I think what do I actually think about that do I like it do I not like it whereas this one as I was watching I thought I just hate this I really hate it it's very clever um, it, it, you know, I understand exactly what it's doing. I've got a lot of respect for what Hanukkah's doing with that film, but I just hated it. Really, just a vile film. Um, just so cynical about everything. Anyway, I also watched another film which James has reviewed not too long ago, back when it was out in the cinema, probably when did this come out? About March, April, I think. Uh, yeah. Jason Statham's film Hummingbird. Or redemption from wherever. The one where he acts. The one where he acts. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's really good though. I think um, I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's it's sort of like a typical Statham film in many respects, except with a bit more um, BBC Four about it. Exactly. It feels like a, a Jason Statham done by BBC doing a BBC drama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was really good. I, and like you say, he can really act in it. I'm, I was surprised. Mm. I, I mean, I like Statham anyway, but this is the first yeah. time he actually shows he's got a bit of um, pedigree. Maybe that's a bit unfair and I've not seen yeah. him do so soon. Starring my uh, good friend Benny Wong Benny as well. Benny Wong. So, yeah, the yeah. go-to Chinese, Korean, Japanese <laughs> character now. Um, <laughs> but he was, yeah, he was good actually. But um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what else did I watch? Oh, well, yeah, I watched. I did a bit of homework for the for, for the pod. I haven't actually seen Hunger Games two or whatever it's called because mm-hmm. it. Just, I just couldn't stand to sit in a cinema for two hours, twenty minutes for something like that. But I did watch. Yeah, <laughs> I did watch um, Jennifer Lawrence's first ever Oscar nominated performance in Winter's Bone, um, which is the story of a sort of. Uh, crystal meth cooking family and the father's gone missing and Jennifer Lawrence is going looking for her, her father. She was she was really good in it. I mean, she was the best thing in it. She was very impressive. Carries the film brilliantly. You couldn't tell that she was quite inexperienced at the time and that she was so young. I think she was 17 years old. 
because mm. she was yeah she she was just great and you could see the potential in her even then so yeah i mean it's worth watching for her performance as thinking stories about crystal meth go breaking bad is a lot better I watched the last okay. two episodes of that and Steve massively undersold it on this pod. I know that you said that it was a very good ending, Steve, but that program is probably my favourite TV series since The Wire. I really just got into that so heavily. It was brilliant. You've, you've watched it quickly. Yeah, we watched it over about three or four weeks, I think. Jesus Christ. You hadn't seen any of it when I had finished it or you just started watching it when I finished it. No, I actually saw the first season when it was on TV. It was it was shown on TV whenever it came out, 2009, I think it was, mm. whenever the, the writer's strike was. That's when it first came out. Um, but then I hadn't watched any of it since then. So, yeah, we've gone through four seasons very quickly. And it's just it's just a very addictive programme. Fantastic writing in it. Just some of the best character-driven... Plots, the direction in it is brilliant, regardless of who's doing it, but particularly the ones Brian Cranston's doing. Honestly, if, you, if you're just putting off watching it and you're not sure, it is just brilliant TV. Really enjoyable, really fast-paced, so involving, just, yeah, fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's actually, this week, I've watched a lot of documentaries. Um, probably more this week than I've watched for the entire rest of the year even. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched a few Werner Herzog documentaries. Uh, Very nice. you shamed by the fact that out of all of us, I had seen the most documentaries on the BIS <laughs> nomination. Well, it, it got me thinking that actually I don't really watch that many. <coughs> I don't, you know, mm. like when I go to watch a film, I go for a fictional story, um, generally speaking, of course. So yeah, I, that was mm. part of the reason. I did think, well, maybe okay. I should give them a bit more chance. And because they've been which Herzog ones did you see? I went for Cave of Forgotten Dreams. I've still not seen that. It's good. Yeah, astonishing. I mean, some of the okay. footage is wow. It's breathtaking. Because um, that's available in 3D, but I've got no way of watching it in 3D because he actually did that properly in 3D um, right. when it was released. But I recorded it off the TV. I think it was on. Yeah. it was on this yeah. week, so I recorded. Oh, okay. But um, it, yeah, I can't. I can't really see how 3D might add to it. But some of the the artwork in it is fantastic. Mm. Especially, I mean, I haven't got that much of a background in in that kind of art, but my wife's got a little bit of knowledge about it, and she's saying so. You know, when you identify ancient Greek paintings and stuff, you can tell by the position of the eyes and blah, 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 blah. All that information about how you date some some pictures and yeah. artifacts. Well, in this, the art from the, these cavemen is, well, if they're cavemen, 25, 27,000 mm. years ago. It's just, it's better than I could do now on pen and paper. And I, you know, if I practiced and these people were just sort of, having a look out of the cave door and then going back to the wall and painting Doodling. it in the dark. Yeah. It's amazing. It's really wow. stunning. Okay. Um, I also watched Grizzly Man. Oh, I love Grizzly Man. Did you love it? It's disturbing. Uh, it, it's an experience. I really liked it. Yeah, it took me a little bit by surprise because I was thinking, okay, so it's going to be a story about a man in the woods mm. living with bears, but it's not really. It's just about the man and yeah. why he ended up living with bears and the circumstances around his life and as it as it progresses you sort of catch on that it's a story about a human struggle really rather yeah. than nature or anything like that so it's fascinating but um, yeah. yeah I kind of think I prefer Cave of Forgotten Dreams though I just okay, I'll, I'll definitely I'll definitely check that one out then yeah 
Um, and I also I also watched another documentary, which isn't a Werner Herzog one, which is called Hank, Five Years from the Brink. I think I've talked before on here um, about one of my favourite non-fiction books called Too Big to Fail by a guy called Andrew Ross Sorkin. I've seen, I've seen this on Netflix. This has come up recommended for me on Netflix. It's okay. about... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I want to see this. So, yeah, what H- was it like? HBO adapted that as mm. like almost word for word from, from his from his book. But Hank Paulson um, is interviewed in this. Hank, the title character, we'll just assume mm-hmm. Hank Paulson, who was the guy who worked for the government, who kind of oversaw the whole sort of financial crash mm. in August two thousand eight, and he was the man who had to decide on bailouts and trying to keep things from getting to the press and all that kind of stuff. Um, I really liked it. I don't think it was as... Uh, some of the reviews I'd read afterwards were saying that if you want an in-depth uh, insight into how things went down, then you should watch this documentary. I don't necessarily think that's true. This is more like a... Mm. Uh, almost like a Jonathan Ross interview, I guess. Or, right, yeah. You know, it's just him talking to camera, a few clips of things that he was... You know, interviews that he did around the time or, you know, clips from uh, interviews with his family and things like that. It doesn't really go into a lot of depth about the crash. It's more about him in the crash, which is fine. I mean, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the few people who does come out of that whole thing with a little bit of respect, and he did as good a job as could be expected. I know that might not be that popular, and I don't really know what I'm talking about when I come to the sort of finance stuff, but he's a very interesting character. And to, yeah, so to get a bit of background on him was, was quite interesting. But yeah, it skips mm-hmm. over everything with. Lehman Brothers and you know Dick Fold in particular, right. Jamie Diamond and Bob Diamond and all that stuff. It kind of glosses over that a little bit, but um, it is worth watching. I think it's worth watching. But as I said at the start, there are two documentaries, well, two films. They're both documentaries that I wanted to talk about with both of you that are being aired on BBC Four Storyville fairly recently. First, yes. first one is that that Steve's been talking about before now, um, which is the Great Hip Hop Hoax. Um, which I probably would never have bothered watching if it wasn't for sort of Steve talking about it. So thanks very much, Steve. <laughs> uh, it, I thought it was quite enjoyable, actually. It, it's about two guys who I'm not going to go over it in that detail, that much detail, because obviously Steve reviewed it in the past. But it's about two guys who fool the London music scene into thinking that they are Americans from California, when in fact they're two Scottish fellas, um, and they go around doing their sort of rapping you know what the kids do these days all the rap music um, <laughs> i'm not going to steal Stuart lee's routine i'll stop there but uh, yeah it's pretty funny not not massively insightful i wouldn't say it gives a, you know that much insight into the music industry as a whole more sort of around the scene of um people being discovered how that works which i guess is quite uh interesting but n- not so much about the music industry i didn't feel that they gave an overall um opinion of that and the two guys, they do seem a little bit like knobheads to me. They would, <laughs> they would, they would be extremely annoying to know, I think. But um, they were what nineteen at the time. They were just kids, basically. Yeah. I mean, how old are you? You're not going to want to spend any time with any nineteen-year-olds, are you? They're all knobheads. <laughs> and their whole life's ahead of them, and full of yeah. optimism and <laughs> and yeah. future. But um. Yeah, I know you you really liked it though, didn't you, Steve? The documentary. I just found it enjoyable. Um, it, it was quite a good look at you know how people can pull off such a big hoax. Mm. Uh, good, a good look at friendship and and the strain that they put on it. 
I mean, it wasn't that much of a look at the music industry, really. The most telling thing was, though, when, you know, the guy at the end, the record executive, who seemed like a real piece of work to me, the one who was, you know, just sort of, he wasn't in a proper, he had a waistcoat on, he was sat in a big office. Oh, and everything. yeah. And, yeah. He, and he, he said, oh, well, you know, it's quite sad, really, because they didn't need to pretend to be, um, American because they had the talent and the personality and then at the start they said well we only did this because we went to an audition as ourselves and got laughed out literally laughed out the door mm. so it kind of contradicted the whole you know the whole thing yeah. the record you know that was the only real telling thing about the music industry the rest was more about the two the two guys and, and their friendship that has disintegrated now because of this mm. Mm. Yeah, I suppose that's fair enough. I mean, it does give the, the the main sort of narrative, I suppose, is driven by their friendship rather than their desire to succeed. Although it is the one guy is very driven. It, it, that comes across very well, much. I, so I mean, I think the the other guy who, I mean, they showed him at the end. He now works on an uh, offshore oil rig, and he's got a. Um, I'm not sure it's a wife or just a girlfriend, but he's got kids as well. And he was, and I think at the time it was just. He had a pretty serious girlfriend, and mm. it was, you know, she was like, on, yeah, yeah, it was like you've got to stop this. This is, you know, you're not, you're not really getting anywhere now. This is becoming beyond the joke. You've got to either make a decision, settle down with me, or that's it. So he had to be well. He chose what looks like the right thing to do because the other guy was still trying to make it as a musician and not getting anywhere. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, okay. They are very interesting characters for a documentary. Yeah, and as as I said, their journey that sort of drives the whole film. It was was quite an interesting one. It was the fact that they lived these lives twenty four seven. Any time they were with, you know, he'd go out for a meal with his girlfriend, and he'd be putting on an American accent, and you think Mm. you really run into anyone here who's going to catch you. I like the story about the Brit Awards first when he was talking to, I think, Daniel Reddingfield, <laughs> pissed and started speaking <laughs> Scottish in his own accent, and it nearly yeah. unwrapped. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny as well. I mean, I, I, it, it, there were some very humorous uh, anecdotes <laughs> that they've got to say to these, so it's worth a watch just to just to see what they're like, but it's a very well-made documentary as well, I think. Um, but, the other, yeah, the other documentary I watched this part of Storyville is one that James has been very um, insistent on getting people to watch. And it's yes. one that I, when he, when he reviewed it on this podcast, when you reviewed it, James, I remember saying to you that I can't see myself ever watching it because the way that this, the subject of the documentary, it's one that I can't really, it, I knew how, exactly how it would make me feel. Um, yeah. And I'm talking about Blackfish, which... Yeah. Um, as I said before, it's, we've talked about both these podcast, both of these films on podcasts before, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it's about SeaWorld um, and, in particular, a killer whale called Tilikum who killed one of the trainers there plus two other people. Um, yeah, as I said, I, I started to watch this on my lunch break at work because it was on iPlayer. I missed it when it was on TV. Oh, okay, I set yeah. it to record, but then I thought, I'll start watching it now. And I just couldn't turn it off. I was hooked into it. I ended up having to use some um, flexi time at work to finish it. <laughs> I just thought, I can't, I can't stop watching it now. And I, I knew I should have because it really wound me up for the rest of the afternoon. I was very um, 
bothered by everything. I just knew exactly what kind of attitude I was going to have to it. And oh, I was physically, physically angry watching it. Um, I think I said in an email to both of you that I was, as, I, as I was watching it, I had a pen in my hand, which I was intending to use to return to work. And I almost kind of snapped it. I was squeezing it that hard because it's just infuriating the, the way that these mm-hmm. that, that SeaWorld treat these I mean they're amazing creatures these orcas they're just yeah. it's just one of these things in nature that every so often if you just stop and think about what they are it's it's astonishing it's you know amazing yeah. and the way that they're treated just as these uh, almost money banks for SeaWorld mm. they've got no consideration at all for them being creatures with you know they come they do take them from families they literally just pluck them out of the water when they're babies and even though SeaWorld are aware that these animals stay in their families they stay in their sort of um their herds if you like for for life they stay mm. with these families and they just come along and pinch it and it's as i said i just i was so angry watching it yeah do, do you know what for me that's actually one of the most upsetting things is um is the taking them out of the wild that was the thing that affected me the most when watching it is because i know that and it's a horrible thing but i know that animals are mistreated uh, across the world mm. for all sorts of personal financial gain and and neglect and things like that um you know some dogs are horribly mistreated and cats and things like that some a lot of animals that are born into captivity are then badly mistreated but the story and there's there's one bit where there's this this got this kind of old kind of navy guy who's this hard-ass bastard Mm. and he pretty much breaks down in describing the cries of the mother whales as their babies are kind of fenced off from them and are taken out at sea yeah. and he's you know he's been at war and he says pretty much nothing has upset him as much as that moment that he was there and that had me absolutely i, I was it just knocked the floor from underneath me yeah. that that kind of story there um the other the other thing which i think is very clever about the documentary is right near the beginning it does kind of it tries to lull you in and it worked with me and it worked with a couple of other people that I've know that have seen it and you know and this bit really near the beginning it's quite on the surface and I couldn't help going yeah it must be fucking brilliant to swim with a killer whale you know and it actually kind of makes you go oh wouldn't that be brilliant almost by you know it sucks you in by making you think yeah no I'd want to swim with a killer whale that looks I can see why these trainers do it and then it kind of just holds a mirror up to you and goes, why? Why do you? Why is that natural? Why would mm. you want that? To, and it, it just makes you really, it, certainly with me, made me really question that because I did, I did suddenly just turn on myself at that point and go, no, that's just horrible. Yeah. It's wrong. Well, I've got a, um, sto- a story about that. <laughs> yeah. When I, I I grew up in Dudley, okay. There's, mm. there's one thing really Dudley has. There's two things if you can't Lenny yeah. Henry. One thing that Dudley has that puts it on the map. Um, <laughs> it's the zoo in the castle, yeah. basically. It's the biggest tourist attraction in, in the area, in the black country. Um, mm-hmm. When I was very little, when I was like r- really small, they used to have a, a killer whale there. And I, right. I was probably... Whale Pardon? Killer whale in Dudley. 
a killer whale in Dudley. Paul, yeah. All right, yeah. It was a massive, like, pit. It's a, it was a big zoo anyway. But it's this, this mm. huge pit. It went, by the time I could remember visits to the zoo, it it already gone. I think it died or it was transferred and then died somewhere else. Um, and they turned it into, like, this big bear pit now. And I remember thinking right. at the time, oh, that's a real shame. I would have liked to have seen a killer whale there. Um, mm. Whilst watching Blackfish, that memory sort of came back to me and I just mm. felt sick about thinking yeah. like that. And I just thought, no, that there is no justifiable reason why an animal like this should be held mm. in captivity. Never mind in a zoo, yeah. like... Just, uh, it was. I just felt Cause, really sick. I know, because I, yeah, I clearly don't. We don't want to get into a huge debate about animal rights and things like that. What I will say is, yeah, because some zoos do some very good work in terms of conservation and things like that, and they do, you know, and, yeah, and clearly some creatures are quite small and don't need. Yeah, but these have been taken out of the ocean, mm. this massive expanse. That they, they will and and. You know, some of the science that this documentary tells you about, you know, dorsal fin collapse and about how dorsal fin collapse is about less than 5% in the wild and more than half of them in sea world or possibly, no, I think it might be like 80% of them yeah. have got dorsal fin collapse in captivity. And, and then, and yet there is the huge animal rights aspect of it, okay, which is this huge debate that you have. Uh, and then there's the fact that people are dying as well and sea world don't seem to give a shit about That's that right. either. And the the other thing that does made me really angry was um, a really experienced trainer died because SeaWorld essentially sent an animal fucking crazy and their first instinct is to hide as much as they can and blame the trainer. Yeah. Um, it, well, it must be the trainer's fault because killer whales are lovely and friendly. And, you know, and it just makes yeah, you so angry. Obviously not. They wouldn't be called a killer whale if they were. <laughs> very good point there, Steve. They should get... <laughs> says Dr. Steve. It's not very good marketing, is it? But, um, no, no. It's, uh, it's quite simple. Don't, don't, you know, I've got no sympathy for somebody who dies for, you know, dealing with a killer whale because it's a fucking killer whale. Well, that's, yeah. that's an interesting they point. The about the, author, though. They are the beautiful, the beautiful orcas. There, there, there was a point there, I think, to be made about the trainers, which mm. who, throughout the documentary, try to distance themselves from some of the atrocities yeah. that took place at Sea World. Probably instinctively, I guess, maybe out of yeah. guilt. Um, yeah. But in my opinion, they're just as complicit in everything that went down and what happened to this particular killer whale. They they were there. They they tried to justify it, I guess, yeah. by saying that they they only went back because what if they weren't there? Someone else might have, you know, looked after them and not treated them as well as I would have. Yeah. And you just think, well, no, <laughs> that's mm. you. You've made the, the choice to go back every day. To yeah. to train, for want of a better word, these animals um, to perform for people, and you just no, I'm sorry, that's not an excuse. I don't forgive you for doing that. <laughs> I just it's a, and and for me again that ties into what I said. I think they are the, the they are the equivalent of that seduction that I felt as an audience member at the beginning. And like you said, your kind of childhood memory. Mm. Um, What's happened is they've been seduced by this idea and and for what yeah willfully ignored that they have turned a blind eye the vast majority of them turned a blind eye because of the exciting 
life that they see they're leading. That's how I felt, and that, that's what really quite upset me, actually. Um, mm. And it was quite interesting. Matt, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he, he saw it, and he said he, he learned a lot. It was one where he didn't find it entertaining, though, and he he he... I'd love to have him here to have this chat with him, actually. Yeah. He said he, he thinks a documentary needs to be educational and entertaining. I think entertaining can be quite a broad concept. And what I will say is I thought, well, you you couldn't turn it off. Um, yeah. I was watching it thinking it was brilliantly presented and I was gripped and I was on the edge of my seat and I had my hands in either curled up or in fists of rage and mm-hmm. things like that. To me, that's just that that's a form of entertainment in the way that it made me want to keep watching. To me, that's entertaining. But it, it so just I, elicited emotions, didn't it? And you yeah. just, but yeah. you couldn't really hide. Them. It wasn't just a lecture. No. It actually, it actually touched me emotionally. Although it was um, very biased. I mean, justifiably maybe. I don't know. Yeah, well, this is this is something we say it was biased, as if there has to be another side to the story. If SeaWorld didn't want to give their side to the story. I can only assume, and I'm sorry if this seems bad, if if they're a multi-million, possibly billion pound, in, part of a multi-billion pound industry in terms of you know zoos and captivity and things like that, um, if they had a good point to put across, they would have put it across. But I can't help thinking that they don't have a defence because they were asked to participate and didn't. Uh, well, there might be legal by... ramifications. I mean, it's might, someone might dies. Be... Yeah, no, no, that's very true. And yet, yeah, maybe the. But do you know what? It's one hell of a compelling argument, and it would yes. have to be an incredible. You know, just looking at the facts, not even about the individual cases, but like yeah, the things about dorsal fin collapse, the, and just the ethics of it. And sometimes, do you know what? So, sometimes something's just wrong. And regardless of what SeaWorld, however they would try to justify their business practices. I, I'm coming from a point of yeah, but it's just wrong, and so yeah. mate, you know. And sometimes I think documentary, you know, it it doesn't need to show both sides. It can be a polemic. It can be I think something's wrong, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spend ninety minutes convincing you that something's wrong. Michael Moore does that brilliantly. Well, that, that um, doesn't. Re- I mean, I don't think that really ticks the box of you know using Matt's criteria of being educational. I think if you're making something that biased, I learned a lot. But if it's really, really, truly biased, can you how can you believe some of the stats? If you see what I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit because oh, no, I no, agree. No, no, I mean, fine. I, I, every, I think every documentary director is select. You know, they are selectively editing things. What I would say, if they are not, as long as it's not misrepresenting or outright lying, if it's if it's representing its argument using facts, that is, for yeah. me, that's debate. And that if that's what it's doing then that's fine. It's then up to someone to counter-argue, someone to put forward their counter-argument. It doesn't need to be, in my opinion, it doesn't need to be in their film. They've made the film using their money and their funding. It's their rules, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Fair right of reply. Someone can come out and actually say, no, it isn't right for this reason, that reason, that reason. SeaWorld have decided just not to comment on well, it. Well, they, they commented uh, about something that happens towards the end of the documentary with Tillicum, and they said... Oh, I've, I've missed that one. Well, they, they've said that... Um, oh, that he does... Perform there, and he's... Perform. Yeah, he sort of... Yeah. He does get to, um, you know, mix with other... Yeah, killer whales. Training he's basically just kept in a tank at the back. Pretty much. Those days. Yeah. yeah, okay, and okay, that's a bit of a counterbalance, and maybe he is training, but 
the argument that I've seen put forward to me is should he have even been there in the first place? And no, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, and it's a really difficult counter argument to that. Now, I, I do think sometimes, and I've seen it on the BBC a lot recently, we get a bit, I think we get a bit hung up on balance sometimes, as if giving equal weight to someone is fair because if they if they haven't got a good argument then no it's not fair to give them equal weight if you see what i mean it's like um well, climate change things like that i i, I, do, I don't me, know see this is black, black criticism being the news it's not it's not being the news it is presenting its argument in the same way a politician can present their argument they can choose the facts that suit that but as long as they're not lying and as long as it's not completely misrepresenting then I think that's perfectly okay, and I think that's I think they're, they're the best type of documentaries as well. The most boring documentaries I've seen are the ones that goes, oh, here's some stuff, oh, here's the counter argument. You make up your own mind. I, where's where's your voice? Where's your passion? Where's your where's your fire there? I think the best documentaries come from me, for me anyway. And this is a personal thing: is someone who sees an injustice in the world, someone who sees that something is wrong and wants to tell us why they think it's wrong. That always works for me. Yeah, I mean, I found it very hard to rate Blackfish as a documentary because I was so emotionally involved in it. I mean, th- mm. just through sheer blind rage, I couldn't really stop to think about, um, oh, w- w- was that really necessary? Was that well made, actually? Did they need to put that in? And, you know, what's this interview signify and all that kind of thing? Because I was just infuriated by all of it. So it was very manipulative, which is actually a, a mm. bugbear of mine with documentaries. I think I prefer a documentary to um, present the facts and then let me decide what I think about mm. it. Which, you know, <laughs> I, I can see yeah. I can see your argument, but personally, uh, yeah, I'm... But it's this whole thing about balance again, which is mm. a really interesting debate, but also another thing that really infuriates me, because people think mm. balance means, well, if you show one side, then you have to have some nutter who comes mm. along and says the opposite. Well, no, that's not balance then, is it? Balance is to give two um, reasonable arguments. And oh, no, I agree. One. My my problem is that a lot of the people in a position to make these decisions seem to think yes, yeah. that balance, you know, and so, which is why Nigel Farage gets on question time all the time without even having a single MP in his party, for example. Yeah. Someone seems to think that is balance, and it's not. No. That's, yeah, that, that's, no, no, I, I agree with you. Although I do find it interesting that you, you, like, you really enjoyed um, Searching for Sugarman more than I did. Mm-hmm. Sugarman, sorry. Keep referring to him as some kind of Jewish Sugarman. man. Searching for Sugarman. Um, <laughs> But and again, there is a, a case of a story where the to make the story better, the people who made it left out yes. some facts. Now, again, for me, I was drawn along by this fat emotional story. I read afterwards, and maybe I did think, oh, they they should have said that, and they should. But in terms of watching the film, I, I was happy. I was, I was happy. Yeah. But I think mainly because I go into a documentary with my eyes open, knowing that they're going to do that. Yeah. So I kind of. I kind of expect it in the same way that I expect when a film says that it's based on a true story, I'm going to go, well, yeah, they're clearly going to change a load of bits for, for narrative drive, but that's fine. The story is the important thing. So yeah, I'm sure we'll come back to this debate <laughs> many a time. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we'll take a break there. Then we'll be on to our new release section, which is chocked full of films this week. 
So new releases, we've got four to talk about this week. So we'll start off with a film that James has seen second in the Hunger Games trilogy, Hunger Games Catching Fire. Uh, so James, uh, we've got a clip of this first and then we'll uh, obviously go into the review. You two have a very simple task. I never meant for anyone to get killed. He has to know that. What are you talking about? Who has to know what? Snow, he came to see me. He's worried about rebellion in the districts. He thinks that they don't believe our love story. You know, Candace, you should have told me that before I went out there and tried to give these people the money. I'm sorry, I didn't know what to do. Candace, what were you thinking? Please, please, just help me get through this trip. Please, just help us get through this. This trip, girl, wake up. This trip doesn't end when you get back home. You never get off this train. You two are mentors now. From now on, your job is to be a distraction. So people forget what the real problems are. So that was a clip of Hunger Games Catching Fire star, starring Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, among others, most of the cast from the, the main cast from the first film returning. So James, tell us about it and what did you think of it? Okay, yeah. So this is based on the second book uh, in the trilogy, uh, Catching Fire, where Katniss Everdeen, played by Jennifer Lawrence, uh, her, in the first film, uh, spoilers, uh, anyone who's planning to watch this, her and Peter Malark uh, survived the first Hunger Games um, and their their final act was seen as a bit of a sticking two fingers up at the uh, the government and particularly President Snow. Um, and so they are spending their time on their victory tour, uh, visiting the districts, but their actions in the arena last year... Um, Spark, have sparked rebellion basically there's there's kind of small bits of rebellion out in the provinces but Katniss and Peter are trying to remain calm at this point however President Snow decides no he's got to snuff out all kind of rebellion so he decides to organise this uber Hunger Games it's the 75th Hunger Games and so every 25 years they have a special Hunger Games and this year everyone who's competing is going to be culled from previous victors from the Hunger Games um, and then there's a hunger, and then you have a big arena thing and then there's an end to it Right, I liked the first film. I know Owen found it incredibly boring. Uh, would that be fair, Owen? Yeah. 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 No, um, yeah. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I thought uh, it had the right mix of kind of action, political intrigue. There was a, yeah. It was in a way. I quite like these books in this film for even even in quite a dumb way introducing the idea of class and political. Uh, protest to the minds of teenagers uh, and things like that um, the books themselves I read the I went to see the first film and then read the second one and the third one because I wanted to find out what happened and in a way it's the equivalent for me I don't know do any of you used to watch wrestling like the the American stuff not the British I used to watch the British stuff as well but any of you watch like WWF wrestling when you were younger I did yes yeah, yeah. okay I I used to watch it for the bits in between the fights, uh, I, I used to love the the stupid like acting and the uh, the ridiculous story. I used to watch it like a soap opera, and then there were these fights in the way. Um, and I, the, for me, the Hunger Games are a bit like that. I I really enjoy all the kind of like intrigue around it, and then once you get into the arena, I get a little bit bored to be honest. 
Christ. Um, and the same thing again. What I will say is Jennifer Lawrence is brilliant. Uh, she's really, really nailed this character of Katniss Everdeen, who isn't some all-encompassing hero, especially in this film, actually. And she spends a lot of this film trying to ignore the fact that the provinces are starting to rebel because she just wants to save her own skin, um, which is quite interesting to see uh, for what is essentially a young adult film. Is she, she is quite a flawed character in that sense. She's also really, you know, a difficult person to like at times. And, and Jennifer Lawrence does that really well. And with a lesser actress, I think it would be a, a bit of a disaster, to be honest. Um, Woody Harrelson returns and is it's fun in it. Um, Donald Sutherland gets a bit more to do as President Snow, which is great because I'm a big fan of Donald Sutherland. So anything I get to see of him is great. Philip Seymour Hoffman um, gets more of a role in this than he did in uh, Moneyball. Uh, he actually gets to kind of do some stuff in this as well. The youngsters in it, pretty decent. Um, uh, Liam Hemsworth uh, is all right in it. Uh, I can't remember the name of the lad who plays Peter Mullen. Josh Hutcherson. Uh, yeah, they, they do a decent job. There's a few more kids who do quite a decent job in it. Um, I, I think what actually, weirdly, what didn't help with this film is that I watched the first one the night before. So I watched them over a space of two days. And by doing that, the second one just felt far more like a retread than I think it would have if I'd left the 18-month gap that I was originally going to. Because it... it if you like the first one, you'll like the second one. Probably, a, some people seem to like it more. It's already in the IMDb top two hundred and fifty. I don't see that lasting. What? Um, Ugh, yeah, it's, on it's my got a, on my keyboard. Yeah, it's got. It's currently got a rating of eight point three on IMDb. I gave it a seven. Uh, it's got a rating of eight point three, and it's currently at two hundred and twenty-four in the IMDb top two uh, two hundred and fifty. It won't stay there. Um, it's hope not. Uh, but it's got good moments. The script is actually pretty pretty good, uh, which you'd expect considering it's been co-written by Simon Bufoy, who's written loads of Danny Boyle stuff, including Slumdog Millionaire uh, and 127 Hours, and uh, Michael Arndt, who wrote Toy Story 3, Little Miss Sunshine. Um, so, yeah, there's, it's got some... It's, it's got some... Uh, it's got decent screenwriters. I'm trying to think of work. It's, there's a good... Caliber, caliber of screenwriter there. Um, the acting is good. What I would say, I think the problem is the source material. Basically, the second story is a retread of the first one, and so I did find myself looking at my watch a little bit. Doesn't help that it's two hours twenty six minutes long. There's no need for that whatsoever. Um, and you kind of the, the structure's exactly the same. You've got you start off exactly the same as in the first film. You start off with Katniss out hunting in the woods and then uh she gets called uh, to become part of a hunger games and then she goes to the city and trains and she's a bit sassy and she does something that judges might not like but you know what they see a bit of a maverick person there so maybe they are going to kind of like her uh then she gets into the uh, arena and has to fight a load of kids again and then there's an unexpected end in it my, yeah, it just is more of the same. If you didn't like the first one, do not go and see this on just on any account. You you will you will not. There is nothing here to turn your uh, to turn your gaze. There is nothing here to make you think. Maybe I was wrong about this franchise. Yeah, if you didn't like the first one, you you really won't like the second one because it's the same and longer. 
but if you did like the first one, there's some good stuff here. There's, it's just a shame. It's a little bit messy. It is too long, um, and there are some. And it just falls apart in some of the young people's acting. Yeah, they're not all bad. Uh, they're, not, they're not bad. They're just you. It, the film is lacking gravitas when either Jennifer Lawrence or Donald Sutherland isn't on screen, basically. And fucking Lenny Kravitz, for God's <laughs> sake. Um, so, yeah, it's it's more of the same and longer, but I still quite liked it. Yeah, well, I'm not going to go and see it. No, very wise. Yeah. Two and a half hours long, no chance. <laughs> <laughs> stupidly, stupidly long. Although I did see a trailer for something called Divergent um, beforehand, and that looks like a. See, what I do think that of these kind of young adult, and I've not, I've only ever seen a bit of Twilight, and I'm going to include Twilight in there as well. I do think this is the best of that lot. I, 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 there is, there's some really, really good production values here, and there are some, there is a lot of talent here, and I really, really like Jennifer Lawrence in the central role. So I do, if you, if you're going to watch any of these films, then this is the one to go and watch. But otherwise, stay clear. Hello. Steve? Hello? Hello? Yeah. Have we lost Steve? Steve? Yeah. yeah. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Steve just walked off while I was talking <laughs> about film, obviously. Get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll pick it up from there, Steve. Uh, so, Owen, I think, unexpectedly, saw um, A Secret Life of Walter Mitty starring Ben Stiller. And directed by Ben Stiller as well. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, well, yesterday, which was Monday to anyone who isn't listening today, why would they be? Um, yeah, Monday, Cineworld had their second secret screening for um, unlimited card holders. First time they did this, the film ended up being Now You See Me, uh, which was all right. You know, it wasn't brilliant. It was just okay. Uh, but I, I kind of guessed what that one was beforehand. Um, from the clues that Cineworld put out on their Facebook and Twitter pages. This time I just avoided it completely. I thought, well, the, the gimmick is that you don't know what it's going to be, so I'm just going to ignore all that. I'm just going to go in. Completely surprised myself. I had uh, ideas that it could be Last Vegas, and if it was, I probably would have walked out and ended up going to see Hunger Games anyway, um, but it wasn't. Um, but it, it turned out to be a film that... That they were already showing a preview of on Monday next week anyway. So I was a little bit caught by surprise, especially when the guy from Cineworld came out of the first and introduced the film by saying that it's, you know, the world exclusive, it's not been shown in cinemas anywhere yet, and it's still actually being edited, so there might be a few blue screens in this. I thought, right, well, why are they showing it now? Um, and then the film started, and it was Walter Mitty, and I looked at my wife and I said... I don't really want to see this if there's blue screens in it because the whole mm. film is all almost full of CGI. Exactly. And I thought, yeah. well, what is the point? But we stuck with it anyway. Um, and I didn't see any blue screens at all in it. I, I could tell perhaps there were some bits that might need editing a little bit. Something mm. just jumped at one point. But other than that, um, yeah, it seemed like the finished product almost. I've seen the preview of this quite a few times now. Yeah. Cineworld put on quite a long preview before. Oh, yeah, you get a super long one introduced by Ben, ben, ben Stiller, Stiller yeah. or something. Yeah, Which, see, I've only just seen the long trailer quite often. Right, I've seen the long preview 
uh, wow. about two, possibly three times. They put it on before the blockbuster, so we saw it before Thor, and okay. we saw it before something else as well. Um, which it kind of does give the outline for the whole film in that preview. It doesn't really spoil everything for you. I mean, the last, mm. perhaps because they were still editing it, maybe, but the last kind of quarter, maybe third of the film was a complete surprise. I didn't really expect it to go the way it did in the end so that was that was nice um but yeah so basically the film itself stars ben stiller it's a remake of well it's, is it, it's a sort of remake of an old film from the 1940s which is also mm. based on a book or a short story or novella i think it is from 1930s yeah. um anyway so it's sort of a remake sort of an uh, adaptation somewhere between the two and it's obviously very modernized tell the story as i say of walter mitty um, who is played by Ben Stiller, who is a sort of lonely employee of Life magazine. He spends a lot of his time daydreaming. He zones out, basically. He's, he describes it as zoning out, um, where his mind wanders and he imagines all these fantastical things happening, like leaping off train decks into burning buildings to save puppies and uh, falling down mountains and snow and ice and all that kind of thing. It's just... Um, well, he fantasizes and escapes from the situation he's in, I guess. Uh, he realizes at one point he hasn't really had any adventures of his own when he's talking to a guy from eHarmony, um, trying to fill out his online profile, and then in an attempt to impress a colleague that he's got a crush on, he ends up going on a journey to retrieve a missing photo negative for the magazine, which is supposed to be part of the last issue ever, um, before everyone's sort of made redundant or downsized, and he's he decides he's going to go find this missing negative. So he tries to find the, the photographer who took it. Um, I think the, the, the best way to start off with reviewing Walter Mitty, because I know this isn't going to be for everyone, it is very much an indie drama with funny bits in it, as well as being very funny, I think the funny bits are very funny, is to say that I actually really liked it. I really enjoyed Walter Mitty. Um, I was checking on um, like Twitter and on Facebook to see what other people after the screening a lot of them were quite annoyed that it turned out to be Walter Mitty when they mm. might have already booked tickets to see it next week anyway um, but it was um, it didn't go down fantastically well some people were saying it was good some people were saying it was okay a lot of people like say annoyed about it so whether that hampered their enjoyment I don't know but I, I really enjoyed it I thought it was really good I do like Ben Stiller though anyway he's he's one of my favourite sort of film comedic actors uh, everything that he does, I think, whether he's playing Zoolander, which I think is one of the funniest comedies to come out of America for years and years and years, yeah. or whether he's playing, you know, Tony Wonder in Arrested Development, I think mm. he's brilliant in that. Um, but he's also been good in some more serious roles. He was in Empire of the Sun, um, mm. with, you know, Steven Spielberg film. He's very good in yeah. that. It was a minor role, but I think he's... So, yeah, I mean, I quite like him anyway. I do wish he would direct more films. Um, he did The Cable Guy and Zoolander and Tropic Thunder, which I think are all very good films anyway. Yeah. Um, but he 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 very much gets to revel in his own uh, devices with this film. He gets to try out lots of different techniques. So he shoots a lot of action scenes, which are really shot really well for action scenes in a comedy. Okay, yeah. so, I mean, there's one which takes place um, throughout the whole of I think then in New York. Scenes take through. Uh, he goes through the whole of sort of New York uh, and all the traffic, and it's a big, bold action scene. But it, it it works really well. It's like something out of a you know a really good comic book film. 
Um, but he also does some of the softer, uh, realistic human element moments really well as well. So you've got some very touching scenes in it. Um, some kind of like where he's realizing what he's uh, his own potential. Um, it's really good. It's very intelligently crafted, I think, in that sense. I mean, it shows a man who is literally gradually shifting the weight of this this corporate world from his shoulders. Mm. As the film progresses, he sort of he loses his tie, he loses his suitcase, his suit changes to a jumper, and it's very. It's not so much a man going back to nature, more as a man sort of learning his place in the world and. It's brilliant. The only negative that I really have of it, um, the product placement in this is just ridiculous. It's not, not normally something that bothers me that much. Mm. I understand completely why movies do it. They have to finance their films. It's one cheap yeah. way of getting some finances. But it, uh, it was just every other plot device. Well, maybe not every other. That's perhaps going a bit overboard. But quite a lot of the plot devices are driven by mentions of things like Papa John's which comes up quite often in the film to the point that it's well, really distracting and just yeah I mean it was verging on being offensive because it was just shoehorned in every so often it's like you were watching mini ad breaks every so often which is very yeah. very annoying um, and it is I mean the story but other than that it's a really good story it's essentially just a bored office drone slowly turning into Ben Stiller well, <laughs> it's yeah. really uplifting it's fun very entertaining movie um, it's got a lot of heart to it, and it is very heartwarming uh, in itself, and just very imaginative and creative. Some of the scenes are just um, fantastic, and they come out of nowhere, and it's they're always entertaining. And I just sat for the whole film with a big grin on my face. And then, yeah, if you like your comedies, very indie, uh, with proper hipster music as a soundtrack, uh, which was great. I think the soundtrack worked really well. Then, yeah, it should be right up your street. I, I so really like it. Big budget indie film. Big budget, big indie, budget film. indie comedy. Oh, no, good. Because I, I, I saw the trailer and I thought this could be great or it could be terrible. And I'm, I'm, I'm heartened to hear your review because I'm also. I, I, I like Ben Stiller. I, I really like him. Yeah. And, um, and I like Kristen Wiig as well. So is it Kristen or Kirsten? I always forget. Uh, Kristen, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and Adam Scott, who plays his kind of bearded boss, um, is also Parks on and Parks and Recreation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was not. It was nice to see him getting a movie role as well. So um, yeah, no, excellent, cool. Oh, I'll, I'll definitely go and see that. Then I think you'll probably like it more than me, and I already like it quite a lot. So okay. Not to sort of pigeon <laughs> stereotype <laughs> James as the guy who likes indie films, but <laughs> I think you would enjoy it quite a lot. Okay. Uh, James went and saw another film this week, and it was yeah. Saving Mr. Banks. Yes, I went to see it this evening, in fact. I went to a preview because it's out on uh, this Friday. Um, so Saving Mr. Banks, which is the kind of true-life story of how uh, Walt Disney uh, tried to persuade author P.L. Travers to let him... Uh, adapt her books on Mary Poppins for the famous Disney film. It stars Tom Hanks as Walt Disney, Emma Thompson, who I love, uh, as P.L. Travers. Uh, it also features Paul Giamatti, uh, Jason Schwartzman, uh, B.J. Novak, Bradley Whitford, and Colin Farrell as well. Um, in a really different role, I was very impressed by Colin Farrell. Um, 
which I don't say too often. I'm not I'm not anti Colin Farrell. I just don't get to see him be good in too many things, and it's a bit of a shame. He's really really good in this. Right. So basically, the story is it's kind of set along two timelines. You've got the the kind of real life '60s movie vibe, which reminded me a bit of um, Hitchcock actually. In a sense, it is the kind of real life story of how one of my favourite films of the 60s got brought to the screen and instead of it being Psycho this time it's Mary Poppins kind of the antithesis in many ways of Psycho <laughs> but both of them, two of my very favourite films and I will just point out uh, I did see Mark Commode talking about Mary Poppins earlier this week where he said that um, he said Mary Poppins is his kind of his barometer film where if you don't like Mary Poppins, he doesn't think he can be friends with you. And I, I, I'm glad that someone of his stature is standing up for Mary because I think it's utterly, utterly brilliant. Um, and I think that helps when going to see this film. Although I will say, um, the audience was actually quite a young audience. It was a preview audience, so a real mix of people. And they really got into it. I, I thought I was a bit nervous because the audience I'd had for Hunger Games Catching Fire was one of the worst... Um, cinema crowds I've had all year uh, just people talking and laughing and going to the toilet and answering their phone and like starting their conversation as they walk down the steps how fucking rude is that mm. you know, okay your phone's gone off you know what it's ringing he was leaving the cinema screen but he started his conversation before he just as he got out of his chair he almost stood up in the middle rude. of the room to answer the phone then yeah fucking rude yeah. Um, but actually the audience for this was really good and preview audiences are notoriously shit uh, but this one was pretty decent which I think helped I think the film helped it was um, yeah so you've got this 60s kind of uh, culture clash comedy going on of uh, the uptight English woman Emma Thompson um, who is utterly brilliant in this really really good with Tom Hanks, who is brilliant. I, and I, again, I like Tom Hanks. He's very likeable on screen. He's brilliant as Walt Disney. Um, so you've got this culture clash between... It's set in LA of this English woman who hates everything to do with LA, hates everything to do with Disney, and has no qualms about showing her disdain for everything Los Angeles, which is which is brilliant. And she does that so well. So many brilliant cutting remarks there. Um, so you've got that lovely culture clash. Um, and also just the, the fun they have in kind of showing how some of the ideas for how Mary Poppins came about came about. And there's like it drops in a few little kind of Easter eggs for you and things like that, which is nice if you've seen the film. You get where a few of the lines come from. Um BJ Novak and Jason Schwartzman play the the Sherman brothers who are the composers for the film, who she turns up and says, Well it's not going to be a musical. Um so they're kind of like immediately put out. But there's really nice bits there. But then the other kind of simultaneous storyline taking place is of her childhood in Australia in 1907. Um, and that, so it's this, you know, goes back a long way into her past. This young girl growing up in the outback, kind of small towns in Australia, having to move from town to town because her father is this this kind of wonderful father. He's a child himself. He's like, oh, he's feeding her imagination. He's playing with, you know, oh, wow, what a brilliant father. But he's taking he's a bank manager and he keeps getting fired because he's a drunkard and he just dosses off work because he wants to spend time with his family and he doesn't kind of he's not standing up for them, he's not taking any responsibility. Um and that's Colin Farrell. And he is 
brilliant, utterly bewitching as this kind of man-child uh, father. The the kind of role that um, Robin Williams might have taken and made it quite schmaltzy when he was a little bit younger. He does it really, really well, actually. Uh, and that was one of the things that really, really that really surprised me. His uh, her mum and his wife is played by. Um, Ruth Wilson, who most recently was in Luther as what's her name? Oh, and you've seen it more recently. Uh, the, the 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 killer psycho. Yeah. Woman. Oh bollocks! What's her name? Alice. Alice. Alice Morgan. Yeah. So like, she immediately came off like, oh my god, is Alice amazing? Well, I, oh my god, it's that woman from Luther whose name I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was great, and Rachel Griffiths, I think her name is. Um, yeah, Rachel Griffiths, who was in Six Feet Under. Um, she okay. plays this aunt who is the archetypal, who is the basically the template for Mary Poppins. Um, so she comes to kind of stay with that family. And that's where Mary Poppins comes from, which is quite big shoes to fill. Um, what's, what's quite interesting about the film is they don't have any, they don't have anyone playing Julie Andrews or Dick Van Dyke. They don't do, they don't touch that bit. Uh, it's all about the creative process um, and the fact that in all of this time, P.L. Travers hasn't signed over her rights yet. So she's gone to L.A. to kind of work with them. But everything they're doing, they need to please her because she's still holding the rights. Towards the end, they actually use some clips from Mary Poppins and it just it melds really nicely. And it could have been a real hallmark card of a movie. Like, oh, isn't Walt Disney wonderful? Isn't Mary Poppins wonderful? Uh, yeah, it could have been really saccharine, but it's not. And the, the ma- two main reasons for that are um, Emma Thompson is really cutting. She is not this underdog. She's a, a really unpleasant woman at times. Um, and you kind of get the frustration of working with her. And the second thing is... Um, it actually works as a bit of an apology to P.L. Travers because she was a bit screwed over by Disney over the whole thing. And that's kind of acknowledged during the film. Um, the fact that she never wanted any animation in the film and there ended up being animation in the film. She never wanted Dick Van Dyke to be cast. And she she had final say on script. It's quite interesting. She wanted to get rid of a load of the songs and she said, I've got, I've got final script to say. And Walt Disney went, yeah, well, yeah, you you agreed the script but i've got final cut say and yeah and so yeah he was clearly a bit of a bastard in that sense and not quite the lovable man that hanks portrays him as um but it's yeah when you think it's disney making a film about disney you just imagine how saccharine that can Mm. be and it didn't turn out that way and it was genuinely funny and touching and anyone who's ever enjoyed a bit of Mary it made me just want to go home and watch Mary Poppins again but not in a I should be watching Mary Poppins instead of this film way in a quite a complimentary way instead so I, I, I really enjoyed Paul Giamatti was lovely in it as well uh, and I, like, I think what's great is it had some fantastic characters and just some low key brilliant actors playing small roles and that, that always helps a film they didn't just fill it with a few kind of non-entities it had some proper proper actors in there and quite interesting um a couple of years ago this uh the script for this was really high up on the blacklist uh the the fifth the annual list mm. of the 50 best unproduced 
uh, scripts in Hollywood at the moment. Um, and it, it is a cracking script, really, really good script. And it's no surprise at all that Disney stepped in and bought it so they could make it. I, I, the thing is, I don't think anyone else other than Disney could have made it, um, simply because you've got Walt Disney there. Um, you get to use all they get to use all of the Disney kind of they get to film at Disneyland, use all the Disney stuff, and then they get to use the clips from the film that they own. So I don't think anyone else could have made it. Um, and also they could have they could have got it a lot. They could have got it very wrong. And no, this I, I loved it. Brought a real smile to my face. Um, a bit like you were talking about uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitter. Walter Mitty, I was just watching this and I was just really happy watching it because it was very funny. And yeah, anyone who's interested at all in film film history, I think it's also worth a look at because it is a nice little exploration of that golden age of Hollywood as well. Who is Mr. Banks then? Mr. Banks is um, <clears throat> the child, uh, he's the father in Mary Poppins. And this is the, and if you've seen the the trailer, you'll see this is the what they talk about is. Uh, yeah, Walt Disney wants to make this, and he assumes that Mary Poppins is there to save the children. And actually, no, it, you know, it ties into P.L. Travis's childhood. Mary Poppins is there to save the children's dad, Mr. Banks, because he's become, he's lost sight of what's important in his life. So that's a life message as well. So that's who it's about. It's about um, Mr. Banks, George Banks. There you go. Just um, before we move on, have you seen Robbie Collins' comment about Colin Farrell in it? No, I haven't. Just the, he says the director's advice to Colin Farrell on the set of Mr. Uh, Saving Mr. Banks, just play it like Johnny Depp would, but 10,000 times worse. I don't think he was a Ow. particular fan of Farrell's performance. I did, I did, um, I'm assuming he's thinking Finding Neverland then. Because um, <laughs> I really like Johnny Depp in Finding Neverland, which is another great film that I love about the kind of... Uh, the true life story behind a, a childhood favourite and Finding Neverland about... Jane Barry writing Peter Pan. Um, I can kind of see that. Although I, I genuinely, I was genuinely surprised by Colin Farrell, but he does tend to attract people who don't like him. Yeah, he's, as well. he's got his critics, hasn't he? Yes, he has. But no, I was really, I was surprised because I was expecting him to be this. When I saw that it was difficult childhood, difficult father, Colin Farrell playing him, I expected him to be this angry, drunken. Bastard, you know, like a hard man, nasty father role, and it was, and maybe it was the role that completely surprised me more than Colin Farrell. But I, I believed him in it, and I wasn't sat there going, "Oh, look, it's Colin Farrell." Yeah, I, I was, I was drawn in. Okay, last film for us to review then, um, or TV special or film, depends where you saw it, I suppose, in some ways. Uh, yeah. Is the I don't know if you, anyone's heard, but uh, Doctor Who was 50 this year, and they had a special yeah. episode. Oh, was he? Yeah, I've not, not seen that anywhere. <laughs> on on sure? Saturday, they had a special episode. <clears throat> um, feature length, titled The Day of the Doctor, starring three... Do- well, you could say 13 Doctors, but certainly three starring. Um, David Tennant was back, and John Hurt was, was involved as um, the War Doctor. Um, here's a clip. I could be a curator. I'd be great at curating. I'd be the great curator. <laughs> I could retire and do that. I could retire and be the curator of this place. Oh. You know, I really think you might. 
So that was a clip then of uh, the day of the Doctor, the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special. Probably advise people to stop listening to the podcast now if they haven't seen it and want to um, see it at some point because I don't think we're going to spoil everything, but we will give some things away. It'd be difficult not to. So um, if you haven't seen it and you want to stop listening now... um, <clears throat> but anyway, I think, should we start with the boring stuff? It's also quite interesting um, and impressive, but, you know, a bit dull as well as the, the actual takings at the cinema. Yes. <clears throat> which was 1.7 million on Saturday alone. So that doesn't count, take into account the almost week since it's been out. Yeah, average of £4,000 per screen, which is very, very impressive. Uh, third highest taking of any film this year in the UK behind only um, Gravity and Hunger Games catching fire. This week, you mean? <clears throat> Not this year. Was that- Lots of films have taken like 18 million and stuff this year. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's the thir- it was the thir- only only the Hunger Games and uh, Gravity took more at the in a week as well. Yeah, that's not just the Saturday taking. Which is impressive because mm. lot if you think about it, this is this is free on TV. This is this is you know most people have got a decent yeah. HD, TV. and we told people to watch it at home as well, and the people listen to us usually, Steve. Mm. Um, you know, it's and if you take into account, it was in 3D in cinema. So if you went to see it in 3D, family of four, all things considered, including getting to the cinema on a Saturday night, yeah. most expensive tickets of the week. Yeah, yeah, getting to the cinema, all the over expensive cinema food to keep your kids quiet. It's going to probably be for a family of four between forty and fifty quid, and you could watch it at home on Easy. telly. So it's Im- impressive that that many people actually went to the cinema to watch it. Yeah, oh, I know. I agree, and I think that, and it also got in the end twelve million viewers at home, pretty mm. much twelve million viewers at home, uh, after counting the people who recorded it and watched it later as well. You know, it, it, and what's great to see. Is um and glo- you know, globally as well. Globally, ninety six countries simultaneously, simultaneously watched it. Simultaneously uh, in ninety six countries, and yeah, it's great. Mm. Um and and I think whether or not you like Doctor Who, it's great to see that there is a British television export that is that is quintessentially British as well. That but, isn't a fucking quiz show. But the better yeah. the better that it does globally. The, the the more money it can generate to be, have because especially going to the older episode of Doctor Who, mm. the effects are what lets it down. It doesn't sometimes it looks really you know it can look a bit shabby and a bit a bit dated, a bit sci-fi movie. You know, in terms I like of effects, that, not in terms of I like that. But you know, and so having more money and having a better reputation, they can improve on the effects, and also they can attract actors with a bit more maybe. Gravity, like John Hurt, and to an extent, Peter Capaldi is going to be the next Doctor. People who've got a bit more acting chops, I suppose, behind them, and it, it, you know, attracts bigger people to the, the, some of the bigger roles in in the program. Oh yeah, it's still going to be made. It's still going to be made by BBC Wales on a tiny budget compared to most other kind of television of its type. But um, I, I just think it's something to celebrate that. Uh, a British TV program that is 50 years old uh, uh, was watched by so many people across the world on the same day. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really positive thing, and it shows that we have got some great talent here. Um, yeah, let's just 
brush over the fact that the BBC themselves killed it off for far too many years, but we'll, we'll get past. BBC didn't seem to go into, in all of its celebration, it didn't really talk about the time that it killed off the TV show mm. uh, and the amount of times that they meddled with it and stuff like that. So we'll, get, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt on this one. Well, Let's talk about the episode then. Certainly a, um, an apt and excellent homage um, to Doctor Who in its 50 years and an excellent kind of 50th anniversary episode. Mm. And surprisingly enough, um, pretty much loved by the majority as well. Uh, I, I saw a few dissenting voices on Twitter. Probably from uh, but, nerds. But not actually not generally by nerd nerds either. Just a few people who didn't like it. But I did see that the popular, the kind of popular audience who tune in now and again for Doctor Who really liked it. But I know a few people, um, for example, um, Seb Patrick on Twitter does a lot of writing around kind of uh, Den of Geek and stuff like that. He big fan of it. He really, really well, enjoyed I it. Think, night. A few other people as well. I think it balanced that really a good a good episode with a good plot, good story, well acted with enough references to Patriot to exactly the worth of, of Doctor Who. It was a real tightrope because there would have been loads, of, millions of people watching it who haven't seen the classic Who's and haven't. You know, spent every oh, lot, waking lot, day thinking that there were. It needed to be accessible, but it needed to throw a bone a lot of pe- to the fans. A lot of people were only going to know it from the 2005 return. Yeah, so exactly. But I mean, uh, and some people, not even that. You know, some people literally will watch anything if there's a big event television thing on BBC hmm. One on a Saturday night. Some people will have watched it purely because everyone else was watching it. But I mean. You know, straight away you came in, you had, and what was it, Foreman's Junkyard, where the TARDIS originally yeah, was in the first... Yeah, you know, the primary school open. from an unearthly child yeah. and... Yeah. Cold, yeah, um, yeah and one of the original companions being on the board of yeah, governors yeah. at that primary school and stuff. Like, it was lovely little touches, so which... Pictures all the way through when you're in the black yeah. archives of every single doctor and companion. Yeah. Uh, mentions yeah. of various other characters you know some of the most famous iconic tardis consoles as well and yeah yeah uh, it, and what i will say uh, i really enjoyed this uh it was a script by stephen moffat really enjoyed it it was back to his best but apparently he, he consulted russell t davis quite oh, okay that's, because that's it, interesting it was because obviously russell t davis was the um in charge of the show before Stephen Moffat took over. Came up with the uh, Time War idea. Yeah, and everything, so a lot, they, yeah. a lot of the continuity and a lot of the ideas came from Russell okay. Davis, so I suppose, you know, working... The jokes the... were pure Moffat, though. You know, yeah. And it, that, there was some really, really good, you know, a lovely, just, you know, a little line about Darren Brown, uh, you know, which was, which was great. There were a few really good lines. I think um, Jenna Coleman as Clara is one of my favourite companions already. She was let down by last series plot, but as a character and as an actress, she's fantastic. Really, really good companion. And John Hurt um, was... John Hurt was great. Although he did get... He was a little bit more cuddly granddad than I was expecting, well, to, to me, considering he was the war doctor. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, to me, he just kind of felt like the other two's dad. Cause he... But yeah, and that was nice. The show was poking fun at itself, and... 
I think he was coming up with he was criticising David Tennant and Matt Smith. He was criticising ten and eleven um, in the way that a lot of people have thrown this criticism. It's, it's eleven and twelve now. Oh, let's not even get started on counting at the moment. It might be, it might be twelve and thirteen if you believe. Yeah, I know exactly. But there, there'll always be ten and eleven to me. I'm not going to change my numbers now. <laughs> it, it goes. It go. Paul McGann was eight. Um, then John Hurt was War Doctor. And then Christopher Eccleston was nine. That's how it was. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, we, I saw someone on Twitter say that we, basically we've just had to invent a new number, and that is War Doctor, that sits between eight and nine. Eight and it's a just half. this new number, yeah. Um, but yeah, like talking about, oh, they get younger, talking about David Tennant's sex appeal and stuff like that, and does uh, Matt Smith have to wave his arms around when he talks and stuff like that. And, and, and that was really nice. My favourite bits were when the three of them were together, mm. you know, and my some of my favourite bits from Classic Who is when you get these multi-doctor storylines because uh, they're they're always they're always really really good fun. Um, I think Stephen Moffat he loves his he loves his properly kind of confusing time travel related plots because the fact for considering Doctor Who uh, considering the Doctor oh God schoolboy era there considering the Doctor is a time traveller. Um, loads of stories until Moffat got in charge didn't really focus on time travel. No, it's like he, literally you travel to somewhere, time and space, not just time, time and space, and then an adventure plays out there. And it, it a, kind of old who doesn't really, not very often, plays around with the idea of narrative and time travel well, story because I suppose he, the Doctor Roy keeps saying I can't travel back I'll cross the exactly so whereas Moffat seems to not give a shit and can come up with some really funny and confusing and sometimes too confusing storylines around time travel but with this one it worked it just kind of it hopped around just enough for you to go oh, oh that's clever oh I see what they've done there and that was that was nice um, and then okay Steve talking about you know, ultimate kind of gifts to the fans. There were, I want to talk about very quickly the two moments that made me, as I said off air, do a kind of squee and then a, a Tim Henman fist bump and yes. And the first one was we saw the eyes of the next Doctor. Mm. Did that get you excited? It, seeing Capaldi. Because he's going to be so different to yeah. any Doctor yeah. we've seen since this come back anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's got, he's obviously an older actor. He's not going to be running around and he's jumping. In a way, he's um, more like a a classic doctor, isn't he? He it's going back to going back to the roots of a wise, superior, hopefully sarcastic older bloke. I just um, I just want Malcolm Tucker in a TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would love yeah. a comic relief special which they show after the watershed where he is just basically being Malcolm Tucker in a TARDIS and swearing at Daleks. That that would be great. I, I, yeah, I can't see it ever happening, but that, I'd I'd love to see that as well. As a side note, uh, because I've not really got anything to say yes. on Doctor Who, I watched yes. the um, the Lord Goldring Inquiry episode of The Thick of It again recently. Oh, I've just bought series four of The Thick of It. Uh, yeah, still just um, as good, and he's just brilliant. I can't and, wait. Yeah, yeah he. Oh, yeah, I, I love Capaldi. Yeah. So yeah, I'm very very excited about that. Then we got to see kind of all the Doctors lined up in some kind of like dreamscape. Thing, which was a nice little thing and then and then the moment I threw something across the room out of pure excitement because apparently it was in the newspapers but I'd missed it fucking Tom Baker turns up 
Yeah, but that excites we're not Steve. really sure kind of how it fits in. I, 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 just, I thought about that and I thought, I don't give a shit. I've just seen Tom Baker again mm. in Doctor Who. They kind of wanted to offer Matt Smith a jelly baby, but... <laughs> But oh, it was just oh, it was so. Nice. And I saw someone the other day said, um, we someone I follow on Twitter, Gavin Bar at Gavin Barber, said uh, we need to ensure. Uh, he said David Bowie and Tom Baker need to live forever. We <laughs> need to start working on that now. And I was yes, completely agree. With uh, Tom Baker, just his voice, and yeah, that and that would, for me was the ultimate. Do you know what? Ego, thank you to the fans. It is a bit of fucking Tom Baker in New Doctor Who. Um, it, it was a great story. It was funny. I'm looking forward to watching it again. I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm actually genuinely more excited about Christmas special and even, onwards now because the last season was bad. I yeah. did not like the last season. Even though the first, it's only 38 minutes long. The Christmas special time for Doctor, mm. which is not long enough for a special. So it's, I suppose they've they've spent all their money on this one, haven't they? Yeah, so. and then they've obviously got to show you know the Christmas specials of of. Mr. Khan and whatever that private <laughs> sitcom is with a man who dressed up as a woman. Mrs. Oh God, Mrs. Brown's boys! Oh yeah. Jesus Christ! Yeah. Oh so, yeah, we've 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 got a bit of that into the schedule and an animated Only Fools and Horses apparently. What? Yep. So, um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> just just put Doctor Who on for like, make it another half an hour long and people would be well at it. Just go, does feel a little bit of a. I tell, tell you what, BBC, scrap what you're doing, make this longer. Do EastEnders, Doctor Who, another little bit of EastEnders, and then put Die Hard on because it's a good Christmas film and it'd be like nine o'clock and so you can show Die Hard. Most people have gone to bed full of food, so There's a lot of EastEnders in your lineup there, Steve. That's yeah, but it's just going to pull people in Christmas Day. There's going to be loads of Corrie and Emma there on the other side, isn't there? So fucking hell. Yeah. Depressing, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, Doctor Who was good. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's all for our, our new release review. Um, what films are out next week? Uh, next week, uh, Carrie is out on Friday, so that's uh, Chloe Grace Moretz in the remake of Brian De Palma's film, and also it's kind of out in cinemas at the moment, but it's out near me from Friday. Blue is the warmest colour. I'm going to be going to see uh, Blue is the warmest colour. Three hours, seven minutes long goodness me uh exploration of young uh female love uh yeah yeah with a extended love scene apparently so it's all good and hmm. um, we'll have one more quick break and then we'll be back for some recommendations for So, uh, some recommendations for you for next week. I'm going to go with television on Thursday night, um, uh, well, evening, 10 to 7 on film for the original Planet of the Apes. Nice. Good choice. Yes, excellent. Not a lot, a lot on TV um, this week. On, on uh, Saturday afternoon as well, uh, on film four as well, one o'clock, The Muppet Christmas Carol. So, uh, yeah, well, that'll be good, showing a lot of them. Good month, but yeah, yeah. Uh, right, so, uh, Owen. 
Um, um, uh, new to Netflix UK, actually. I'm recommending the latest Arnold Schwarzenegger film, The Last Stand, directed by Ji Woon Kim. It's his first English language film, probably best known for things like uh, he did The Good, The Bad and The Weird, and he did A Tale of Two Sisters, and a film I talked about on here a long time ago, I Saw the Devil. Um, those are probably the films he's most well known for. But yeah, this is... Uh, um, it's basically a, t- a sheriff of a town that's sort of on the border between Mexico and America, and he is dealing with some drug boss that's coming through his town, and it is every bit as good as it sounds. Uh, but not <laughs> one of Arnie's best, but it's yeah, it was great to see him um, in the cinema earlier this year, back to being on form and in a leading role, so well worth a watch. Just, just another point about Netflix. Um, yeah. They've now added a feature on the latest update, um, which is like a, a watch list. So you can yes. look through now and add things to yeah. if you want to watch to a list. So you can then mm-hmm. spend hours and hours looking for something when you turn it on, which is, a, I think it was a feature in America anyways. I've heard people mention it before, but I've never seen it until my Netflix app on the Xbox updated last week. And now it's there all of a sudden, So which is which is great. Yeah, I've been using Very it for handy. a little bit now, actually. Yeah. It's really good. It's been on PS3 for a little while, but yeah, it's a, it's a great little mm. thing. Yeah. Because uh, I used to have to press play, like, so that it would go on to oh, my right. recent, like, play the first few seconds and then it would save in my recently watched, but obviously it can only save so many there as well, so. Yeah, I didn't yeah, have no. the forethought to do that, so I was just uh, <laughs> trying using to remember. And, <laughs> yeah. and James, what, what's on for you? Okay, uh, out on DVD on Monday. I'm really excited about this because uh, I'm sure not only am I dead excited to watch the film again because I only saw it once in the cinema in the end. I tried to go back, uh, but it will. Ha- I'm sure it'll have some cracking features as well. Um, hopefully, a commentary from the man himself, uh, like my first series of I'm Alan Partridge has got. Uh, Alpha Papa is out on DVD and Blu-ray on Monday, the second of December. One of my favourite films of the year so far. I think it's in my top five, actually. Um, yeah, absolutely loved well. it on release. Uh, Coogan is brilliant. He didn't get it wrong. Absolutely nailed on film. Um, brilliant soundtrack as well. It's just, it is pretty much the perfect British comedy. Definitely the perfect British TV to comedy adaptation. Um, yeah. It's also, if you didn't see it in the set, watch it. It's just fantastic, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Can't wait to watch it again. That's out on Monday. Okay, so um, that's all for this week's podcast. Uh, so thanks everyone who's contributed, and thanks to all of you who listen. You can find us at the usual places on the internet, and we'll be back roughly the same time next week uh, with a new edition of the podcast. And us all having watched a documentary about Willies. The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, with original music provided by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics, and on Twitter at at failedcritics. Jim Jiminy, Jim Jiminy, Jim Jim Chiru. Good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Or blow me a kiss. And that's lucky too. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 